And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make, the, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, God gives us his word so we can learn to rest in him, so we can be reinvigorated, renewed, refreshed, uh, to move back out into the callings that he's given us. So let's pray that his word would be clear this morning. Father, we ask that you would speak to us by your word. We know that you give us your word so that we can be equipped for life and godliness. And yet you know it is often hard for us to understand, and so we pray that you would give your spirit, that he would work to convict, but also to convince us of the completeness of the work of Jesus on our behalf. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Several years back, I was, I'd been walking along with, with a, a young man who was, uh, this is when I was in campus ministry, and he had some specific struggles, nothing particularly unique, but you know, struggles nonetheless. And one day he sat down and he said, you know, I'm, I'm just taking a break from all of it. And uh, he said, I'm just tired of struggling. Of course, we talked about, you know, <laughs> we talked at length about what that means and maybe ways in which he was struggling that because he had missed some things. But you know, I'll give him honest, I'll give him credit for being honest, right? To live by faith has its struggles. As we, uh, as we wind down this series in the life of Abraham, this week and over the, the next two weeks that follow, we're going to see a number of themes converge that have been there throughout the whole story. And this morning, I think it is clear 
the way in which both Abraham and Sarah are struggling with their faith. And there's two struggles in particular when we live by faith that are clear here. One is a struggle for perspective, and the other is the struggle to invest. Well, unpack those as we go, but the struggle for perspective and the struggle to invest. The struggle for perspective is really Sarah's struggle. Did you notice this? Sarah gets the son she's always wanted. Isaac, the son of laughter. And you remember a few weeks back, we thought about how, how the, the idea of laughter gets played upon. And here, she's joyful. She gets, she gets this son, you know, and it's this, there's just this wonder over this. I mean, it's obviously a miraculous birth. Uh, the excitement, the wonder at it. God has delivered on what he promised And then she loses sight of that joy and that wonder right there. As he's growing up, he gets to, in the ancient world, it was probably somewhere between two and three that, uh, that kids were weaned. So he gets to, the, you know, the kid's grown up a little bit. They're having a party because it's a big event. Uh, and they're having a party and she sees Ishmael, Abraham's son, that, she, that he's had with her servant. And remember, that was her idea to begin with. It fits within this ancient Near Eastern pattern, but it was her idea. And she sees Ishmael picking on Isaac. Uh, it says he laughed. Almost all the commentators agree the idea of laughter here is mockery. It is the same word, but all, all, the, all the commentators going back even to ancient Jewish commentators agree that what's going on here is, is teasing, is mocking, is something like that. That's what Paul picks up on in Galatians 4. He says the same thing, basically, that Ishmael was, he uses the word persecuting Isaac. So Ishmael is picking on Isaac. Sarah sees it, and she's done. Right? It just, it just brings up all that old animosity that she had towards Hagar and towards Ishmael, you might remember that from back in chapter 16. It brings all of that back up, and she tells Abraham, get them out of our house. At this point, Hagar and Ishmael basically leave the story as well. There's, there's a little bit, we're not going to end up reading it, but the, the next little narrative bit is about where they go and where they end up. And the only time we hear from them again is a very brief cameo from Ishmael, in chapter 25 at Abraham's funeral, but that's it. Uh, they move out of the story. Sarah has literally a miracle happen to her and quickly forgets. In her mind, her animosity becomes the focus. Everything else gets blurry, right? What, what she sees at that party is not the ways in which God has blessed her. And by the way, part of the whole celebrating someone weaning is because so many children died young in the ancient world. I mean, really up until very recently. Uh, it was a big deal for a child to get out of infancy 
and out of toddlerhood. That was a big deal. That was something to celebrate. She has been blessed. She has had miracles happen in her life, but all she can see is the threats. It's hard to have perspective, isn't it? That's what most of us, that's really how most of us operate, right? Is we forget about the ways in which we've been blessed. We forget about the ways in which good things are going on in our lives and the things we fixate on, the things that are in focus in our mind are the difficulties. And most of the advice people give you to try to help you have perspective don't usually help, right? Well, it could be worse. A line that has never helped anyone that I've definitely said. Uh, well, at least you still have this. Not a help. It never seems to help, does it? All that kind of, all those pat lines. And this is the strange thing then. Our memory, which should give us perspective, and sometimes does. That's why wisdom is associated with old age, right? Because you have, you at least have the availability of perspective. But our memory can also foster resentment and a sense of superiority. In fact, talking about old age, uh, John Knox, who was, who was a 16th century reformer, in his liturgy uh, for the church, in the prayer of confession, says, forgive us our sin, the sins of our youth, which most of us wouldn't have trouble coming up with a list of what those might be, and the sins of our old age. That's a harder one to define, isn't it? And I'm not very old, but I am old enough to know resentment has got to be at the top of that list. The grudges that we nurse, the things that we cling to, the ways in which we've been wronged, maybe the things we feel like we were cheated out of. Resentment's really toxic, isn't it? Hanging on to an old wrong. Anne Lamont, in one of her essays, says, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. It's like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. It's hanging on to this thing, right? I'm going to hang on to this grudge. I'm going to hang on to this wrong that's been done to me. Thinking that that's going to punish the other person. But all it does is eat me out from the inside. Resentment is it's that hanging on to that old wound. And you know, the Bible is really clear on this point. And what we're called to is forgiveness. But forgiveness doesn't get a lot of airtime. It gets a lot of passing references in the church. But it doesn't get a lot of airtime. I think in particularly in Presbyterian circles, we talk a lot about repentance. Fair enough, we should talk about repentance a lot. We don't talk a lot about forgiveness. Partly what happened, partly that's because we misunderstand what, what uh, forgiveness looks like. We think of it as downplaying or dismissing something that has happened. 
which couldn't be the fur, which you know couldn't be further from the truth, because really you're not forgiving if you're if you've convinced yourself it wasn't a big deal. You're not really forgiving if nothing actually bad happened. In the and when when we get into that mindset of trying to explain something away, we're not forgiving. That actually is dismissing, or downplaying, or at least avoiding dealing with what is difficult. No, no, no. The path of forgiveness begins with honesty. It begins with an honest assessment of sin. And it, it is about fostering a tender heart toward the other person despite what they've done to us. Recognizing that we are not above sin ourselves. Recognizing that even that person who has sinned is ensnared by it and wanting something different for them. In Ephesians 4, synonymous with forgiving, Paul says being tender-hearted. Being tender-hearted. Forgiveness is hard. And look, there are some caveats. You, you probably want some caveats, which you should. Right? Forgiveness doesn't mean you're reconciled with the person. But the sad reality is sometimes we've done the work of forgiveness in our own heart, but the other person will repent. You can't be reconciled if the other person isn't going to repent. You may have done the work on your own heart, but sometimes that's where you're stuck. Waiting for if or when that person will actually repent of what they've done. It also doesn't mean you allow people to continue to sin. Forgiveness doesn't, you know, forgiveness sometimes actually requires a real tenderheartedness towards the other person actually requires that you call in sources of accountability. That might be church discipline. It might even be bringing in the civil authorities, right? And in the worst circumstances. Now, I'm not saying that forgiveness is easy, It's not. But I am saying that it is what God calls us to. And that is hard. That is a struggle. It is also beautiful and worth our time. Because the truth of the matter is, the longer we hold on to wrongs done to us, the more we continue to be defined by them. And for some of you, there might be things you've experienced that will take a long time to work through that for. I'm not trying to say this is going to be quick or easy. But I am saying that God has something better than being defined by the ways in which we've been sinned against defined by the resentments that we hang on to. And a key part of that, the part that Sarah seems to be missing, dealing with resentment is about getting perspective. It is about starting to understand my life in a different way. 
starting to see it through different eyes. How do you do that? What does it look like for you to understand your life differently than through the lens of the resentments, through the lens of the challenges and the difficulties that you faced? It means going to the Lord and asking Him to show it to you through His eyes. Prayer and the Word are essential to it. There are, you know, over and over again, it, this is a theme. As a pastor that I've seen over and over again, I've heard other pastors say over and over again, people will come and talk to you about being discouraged, and I'm not above this myself. People, we get discouraged, and we walk with our faith, and then we ask the simple starting point diagnostic question, are you in prayer? Are you in the Word? And so often, not always, we can be discouraged even when we're in the prayer and in the Word, but so often the answer is no, or not that much, or not very often. And part of the reason is, see, with prayer, if we are trying to cling to our resentments, we are so often silent in prayer because we don't want to bring that to God. Or at least if we're praying, we are dutifully avoiding that topic, doing everything we can to work our way around it because we know that God might have something to say to that. And we don't want him to. We want to hang on to it. You see, when we talk about even like prayer and thanksgiving as key parts of, of going to the Lord in prayer, part of that is about changing our perspective so that the conversation is not about me and my already determined things that need to happen in my life. It is about going to the Lord and, and, and being reminded in our prayers, that he is good, that he is gracious, that he has everything in his control, that he, want, that he, in fact, intends for everything to work for the good of his people, and then bringing it to him and asking him to do something, because he might do something different than we expect. He's probably going to do something different than we expect, and certainly if we're clinging to that resentment, he's going to tell us to forgive And we don't want to deal with it. And we wonder why we're struggling. You see, prayer is always a litmus test. Do you bring it to the Lord in prayer? Here's the other thing. Are you in the Word? Did you notice throughout, actually, at the beginning of this story, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. She conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Right? God's delivering on what he had promised. And so often what happens is we are out of the word and so the clarity of what God promises in our lives is lost. We think it's other things than what he has actually promised. We think ever so slowly, ever so surely that, well, we, he wants me to have good things, right? 
And in my mind, for me to have good things means it's going to go this way. Well, that's not what he promises. What he promises is that he has sent his son and he's at work in your heart and in your life to work in you tenderheartedness towards others. To work in you to grow the fruit of the Spirit and to put away all those other things that cling on. We need Scripture to remind us that when, and when we struggle with narratives about our own worthlessness or the worthlessness of others, that those can't possibly be true if He has sent His Son. When we struggle with a sense of helplessness, that can't possibly be true if His Son has sent the Spirit. When we struggle with fear and anger and anxiety, we are seeing the world as if God had abandoned it, which cannot possibly be true if He's entered in. We struggle for perspective. That is a constant. And yet, and yet, God has given us what we need. He's given us his word. He has called us into prayer. And he will meet you in those things. If you will listen. Perspective is not far off. It's not just perspective that we struggle with. We struggle with investing in what we need to invest in. This is Abraham's problem. And this is more subtle. This is more subtle. Abraham loves Ishmael. It's his son as well. He should. When God showed up in chapter 17 and said, hey, look, the actual plan... Not the plan you came up with. The actual plan is Sarah's going to have a son named Isaac. He's going to be the promised son of the covenant. Abraham begs him, says, well, can't it just be Ishmael? He loves him. Again, as well he should. I mean, he's not happy with what Sarah wants. In fact, we see a sequence unfold in verse 14 that is echoed at the beginning of the next chapter. He rises up early, he packs all the things that are needed, carry them on the back, and he, sent, and he takes his son to go away. And actually, at the, by the beginning of chapter 22, which we'll see next week, God will talk about Isaac as his only son. He's lost a son. Those echoes tell us something about Abraham's disposition here. Abraham is losing something precious to him. And yet, and yet, there's a bite that has truth in it from Sarah. Ishmael's not going to be treated like an heir, like my son. 
And that has to sting because that also seems to be true. That Abraham had not settled in his mind. That Isaac was the heir of the covenant. And look, I'm not saying that Ishmael actually absolutely had to be sent away. What I am saying is that the, apparently the treatment was different. Or, that, or there was a lack of distinction, actually, is the problem. This is hard to get our minds around in the modern world. Because in the modern world, appropriately, to treat different children you know, differently is a bad thing. And that's, that's appropriate. In the ancient world... Whether we like it or not, when the, when the elder son was heir to, every, to almost everything, to actually love your children meant to train them up for what they needed in their different callings. And so the heir would need to be trained in different ways as he grew up. The other sons needed a different skill set to make their way in the world. Again, I'm not saying we have to like this, but it was a reality, right? And if Ishmael was being treated as an heir, Ishmael was actually not being treated well, strangely enough, if you can get your head around that. He was not making a distinction. Sarah, though bitter and wrong to act out of her bitterness was not incorrect in her assessment of Abraham and where his heart was. Abraham had not settled in his mind that God was going to work through Isaac. He did not invest in what God called him to invest in. This is tricky. It's tricky in our lives because there, we're, we're supposed to do something for a career, right? We're supposed to have family. Not everybody's supposed to go into professional ministry, right? And yet, we're still supposed to invest in the Lord. And parsing that out is hard, right? What does it mean to invest in everything that the Lord wants and still be faithful to these callings. Well, it has everything to do with the perspective, I think, by which we pursue them. In other words, our perspective and what we, how we invest are deeply related. A lot of us pursue all these different callings with the mindset of getting in and getting ahead. And then sometimes some of us are just trying to get by, right? So whether you're get it, trying to get in and get ahead or whether you're just trying to get by, our perspective is skewed. We see these as things that we're doing for ourselves rather than callings that God has placed on our lives to bless others. So if you're pursuing your career in a way where you're just trying to get ahead, If that's what your focus is, you will not think of it as an opportunity to love others as Christ loves them, to care about and invest in the lives of others. If you're just trying to get by, similarly, it'll be just about what do I got to do rather than this is a calling on my life to bless others. 
There's a big difference. Whether you're a getting in and getting ahead type or a getting by type, we've lost perspective. What God calls us to do is invest in the callings that he's given us for his glory. That others might see what we're doing and praise his name. So the question isn't whether you need to have a career or not. (laughs) You need to do something, right, as a vocation of some sort. It's not whether those careers are good, it is what are they good for. That's the question. What are they good for? It's not whether having a family is good or not, but what is it good for? Families lose perspective on this quite a lot, you know. I mean, career is kind of the low-hanging fruit, the obvious stuff. Families lose track of this. You know, when I was a campus minister, had all these hard-driving students, and man, I'll tell you, sometimes it was their Christian parents who had a hard time when they decided they weren't going to go for the super lucrative, you know, super respected jobs, and we're going to go be teachers, <laughs> and we're going to go do other things that didn't look so good. Sometimes it was their parents that had the hardest time with that. It was like they actually want to honor the Lord. They can see that they can honor God in this career. And you're giving them a hard time. I mean, marriage itself can sometimes even become a kind of idol like this, right? Where we lose track of what it's for, that it's meant for God's glory. Not just for us. Friendships are the same way, right? We can lose track of friendships being for God's glory. To bless them rather than a thing that feeds me and my needs. Whether it's the causes that we champion, the hobbies and the interests we pursue, there are so many things that we invest in, but we're not investing in them for the glory of the Lord. If, uh, if your hobby is a source of strife in your family, it may not be for the glory of the Lord, whatever you're getting out of it, right? And this is hard. I mean, I'm not saying that there's simple answers to each one of these. It has to do with your own heart. It involves you stopping to think, right? That's part of the struggle of it. And most of us on this front just kind of give in. Right? Well, I know this is what I'm supposed to do to get ahead here. Or this is all I need to do to get by here. And that's all we're going to do. And this is part of the struggle of faith. That's why it's a struggle. Because it calls on us to reflect and to bring even our work, even our hobbies before the Lord. And ask how we can do those things to God's glory. The only way that we get to that mindset is to see what Abraham and Sarah have lost track of already, that God is the one at work in their lives, even in the fallen world. He's messed up. In fact, he will work. The whole point of his calling Abraham was to bless the nations, right? 
to give him a son. And we've rehearsed this over and over again in this series, right? It's not just Isaac that God was sending. It was Abraham's great, 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 who knows how many greats, grandson, right? The one, the, the real son of laughter who was, also the son, who was also a man of sorrows, who laid down his life for us. That was why he was called. That's why God was invested in the life of Abraham, was to send his son through them. God invested in them in order to deliver them. But God's investment is way bigger than any investment he calls us into. Do you, do you see that? Whatever we're called to think about and to invest in, whether it's our career, our families, our hobbies, our friendships, our, what a cause that we're that we feel called to, whatever it is we're called to, the investment we're called to put into that for his glory is just a fraction of God's investment in our redemption. Because God has called his very life into it. He has sent his son into this world that we messed up. To suffer on our behalf. To suffer at our hands in order to redeem us. God's investment in our redemption is his whole life. Paul's not mincing any words about it in Colossians 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, etc., etc. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. God has invested in our lives everything he has. And it's a guarantee by the resurrection of Jesus that he's going to make good on it. What I wish that that young man had seen years ago when he told me that he was tired of struggling, what I wish I had thought to say was that God has invested everything in him. And yes, there are challenges. Yes, there are struggles. But the depth of God's love changes the shape of our struggles. That they need not be all-consuming. They need not eat us up. But rather, they ought to point us back to the beauty of God's love for us. The depth of it. The length of it. The height of it. The depth of His investment in our lives. So what are you ready to invest prophet Isaiah once said, why do you spend your money on that which is bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Why don't we go to this meal and find out what satisfies, all right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son on our behalf. 
that you have invested in our redemption more than we could possibly understand. And in our redemption, you give us the hope, even the resources to make our way through the struggles of faith. Would you deepen our faith as we come to this meal? And by your spirit, you would feed us spiritually even as we partake of it. We ask in Christ's name, amen.